It's complicated if you're poor, it's complicated if you're middle class, it's complicated if you're rich. Very, very complicated. And these organizations come in to address challenges. Now, I don't know of anybody who would go to a brain surgeon and say, here's $50,000, I need surgery, but I'm gonna tell you how to do it because I know about X, Y, Z. Welcome to Be Giving, a podcast from Foundation Source, the nation's largest provider of foundation management services and a trusted source for philanthropic expertise. In each episode, we'll hear from notable experts, where we engage in conversations about personal perspectives, experiences, and thoughts on the most important issues shaping the philanthropic space. Let's dive into the world of charitable giving right here on Be Giving. Today, we're joined by Stephen Gyllenhaal and Rudy Espinoza for a thought-provoking conversation about the ways in which we reward charities for their goals and accomplishments. Stephen is an award-winning director, writer, and producer, and most recently, he directed Uncharitable, a provocative documentary about the nonprofit sector. The film is an educational expose and a powerful call to action to rethink how we approach charitable work and funding. The film shares the personal journey of Dan Pallotta and featuring several other notable figures in philanthropy, including our other guest today, Rudy Espinoza. Rudy is the executive director at Inclusive Action for the City, an organization that serves as a platform for innovation in economic development and community building. His work centers around identifying investment opportunities in low-income communities for the private sector, specifically organizing efforts to revitalize neighborhoods. Welcome to you both. Stephen, I wonder if I could start with you and ask what drew you to this project? Why a documentary film about nonprofit organizations? Well, I knew Dan Pallotta, who created the AIDS rides and raised basically half a billion dollars for AIDS and breast cancer and suicide prevention. I knew him while he was doing that quite well. I never did any of the rides because I had two young kids. And we really were friends because it's sort of just believing, having, believing in similar things about life, I guess you could say. I really understood what he was doing. I was uh, scouting a movie in Canada when it came across the news that his whole company had gone under. And I was shocked. And I called him, assuming it would be a couple of days before I heard from him. Usually that's what it was, but at least a couple of days, because he's doing those kinds of things. Doing anything in the in the charitable sector means you're working 24-7, and that's not enough time. So I was surprised when he picked up right away. And he said that after a couple of minutes of, yes, it really did happen, he said, all day, nobody has called me. I have become a pariah. So that was my introduction to really the drama that became ultimately the movie. It was many years later. I had made a, I hadn't made documentaries. I was mainly making narrative films. I had made a documentary called In Utero, which was all about the science from conception to birth. Because I was trying to have a child. <laughs> and, uh, and I made, and I made the movie. Um, and it was very, it was a very important movie. And Dan came to me at one point and said, would you think about making a movie about what happened to me? And I said, I'm not sure, you know, it's a very powerful story and I'm very moved, but I'm not sure. And then he told me about a number of people, a number of other people who had been very, very successful, had accomplished major, major things and were destroyed by the old, by the ethos, not old at that time, 
basically the ethics of, you know, you must live in sackcloth and ashes. You must be paid very little. You must never advertise except at four o'clock in the morning. You, you need to be a humble human being who, who sacrifices everything for the good of what you're doing. But these companies are all destroyed. And I went, huh, that's an interesting documentary to make. And I thought, well, I'll throw it together. You know, I'll do a couple of interviews. We'll do whatever. That was seven years ago. And um, I think one of the things that happened in the making of it, and then I want to turn this over to Rudy, was that I went from knowing Dan, respecting Dan, really fond of everything he'd done. I really, really think he's a very a brilliant guy to understanding that, well, Rudy is a really good example. We, we did a um, sort of get together at one sort of thrown together sort of charity people talking. And I listened to him talking. We were sort of in the middle of making the movie, just starting really. And I went, this guy is cool. He's very articulate. I got to get him in this movie. And, and what happened was more and more, I began to feel deeply that while I've worked with a lot of movie stars and I've worked with a lot of important people and I've been in politics a lot, a lot of times in my life, really, really brilliant people. I've known presidents since I've been in the movie business, which is weird. Nonetheless, the most heroic people I've met, the most intelligent people I've met are in this sector. And that made me shift from just making a movie sort of whatever to getting more and more pissed off, more and more impassioned to the point where we've literally just finished the film yesterday at four o'clock in the morning, today actually, four o'clock in the morning, because I wanted to get it as right as I could get it for the people who are actually doing the most important work in the world. And I'm just the messenger here, so I want to turn it over to Rudy. Stephen, thank you so much. And I, I appreciate that you're describing a group of leaders that are working 24-7, and they're at once um, on the precipice of, you know, being able to get just enough funding to survive. And they are also held to task around how successful they're allowed to be. Rudy, would love to open it up to you to sort of talk about that ecosystem, that relationship between funders and nonprofits and from your seat as an executive director with the responsibility of operating the organization and ensuring that your work has sufficient funding to, to go forward. Yeah, thank you, Elizabeth. It's great to be here in, in this conversation. I, I guess I'll just start by saying, just by talking about the ecosystem of nonprofits and just say that Stephen is right, that they're, the sector is full of heroes and high caliber professionals that have dedicated their life to solving problems in, in their communities. And this, uh, this sector, this workforce, has taken it upon themselves to shun other ways of, of, of uh, other pursuits in life to say, hey, we want to try to figure out how to help others. And I, I too have come across and work with every single day amazing people that have um, advanced degrees from Ivy Leagues and, and other schools and who have said, hey, you know what, I'm here to, 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 to address poverty and to eliminate it. I'm here because I care about racial justice and I want to do something that lasts beyond me or and, and is more important than my own pocketbook. And I think that the these these leaders and these change agents 
need resources to do what they're doing. And I think that philanthropy is one of the important um, stakeholders and allies that we often call in to this work to be with us. I was uh, with some funders a couple of days ago and I told them, hey, um, uh, you need us. You need us and we need you. And this is really about us working together and making sure that we're all playing our role to, to, change, to change the world. And so the ecosystem and the connections that uh, the nonprofits have with philanthropy is really important. But I will tell you, Elizabeth, that it's complex and that it, it actually is actually really tense and mm -hmm. it's really political. And there's a lot of uh, barriers that we've constructed over time that have kept philanthropy and the nonprofit sector from working well together. And I think that what the movie does, the movie tries to inspire us to look at, look at our roles differently and, to try, and, it, and it tries to unlock all the biases that we've created over time, or as Dan Pallotta has educated us with, uh, that has come from the Puritan history of this country that is probably has led us astray a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about that tension. And that is what, in fact, the documentary really gets to. So talk a little bit about what's sort of top on the list. What, what causes some of the tension between your organization and the handful of funders that you might be working with? I think that, um, man, it's, it's a, that's a really tough question. There's a lot of reasons why there's tension. I'll tell you that a lot of the funders that support inclusive action are amazing. And I think that there's a lot of shifts that are taking place right now in philanthropy that are trying to move to, towards Stephen's new charge, which is to give out more general operating money. And I think that we're, we're seeing that. And so, uh, you know, I want to start positively and say, hey, you know what, there's, you know, a lot of the funders that support our work are amazing. And I'm seeing the shifts in real time. Um, but some of the tensions that we still encounter, unfortunately, are related to how our work is valued. Um, I think that, uh, unfortunately, I, I do come across some potential donors that don't understand why we would allocate some resources in our budget to pay our staff. There is a lot of uh, suspicion about whether uh, resources that are donated to our cause are actually going to, you know, support, you know, the people that they want to help. And I think that they almost, the tension I think sometimes is around the value that we put on the workforce, the nonprofit workforce. And I don't know, sometimes, Elizabeth, I feel like, you know, our work is undervalued. And our... I want to step in. Yeah, Stephen, please jump. Because I have now experienced, because the, the film was made with donations completely. And, um, and I've now experienced what pretty much every nonprofit leader experiences, which is you learn to kiss ass big time. You learn to never criticize ever. You learn to have them always be right. And the thing that's fascinating about that is, okay, they made a billion dollars, let's say, or they made hundreds of millions of dollars or whatever. Even they've made a little bit of money and they want to give that money to the homeless, for instance, or, or they want to give it to, you know, to Rudy's organization. When you talk about undervaluing what they do, think about for a moment the population. Just think about almost any human being and the issues that they're going through when they need some support, some help. Not because they've done anything wrong, but because of so many complicated, it's very complicated why someone's in a position where they are. It's complicated if you're poor, it's complicated if you're middle class, it's complicated if you're rich. Very, very complicated. And these organizations come in to address challenges. Now, I don't know of anybody who would go to a brain surgeon and say, here's $50,000, 
I need surgery, but I'm going to tell you how to do it because I know about X, Y, Z. I've come to believe and understand that what the sector is doing almost across the boards and 99.9%, as Darren Walker says from the Ford Foundation, are utterly honest, are trying to do their best. I don't know of any of them that is much less critical, frankly, than the complication of brain surgery. Talking about psychological issues, talking about financial issues, talking about spiritual issues, talking about physical issues that are being addressed by almost every single charity. So the idea that, and what we're trying to really talk about in the movie is, let the people who are the experts in this, who are committed to this, do their work without without your getting in the way. That's not to say, not to see how the impact is, not to be very careful about what is the impact, but the issue of the way the, char- the navigators, the charitable, you know, those watchdogs look at things, because they're very understaffed themselves, by the way, and should have much more money to explore all this stuff. They only have an overhead way of looking at this, because they can't get into what the details are. And what the details are is where, as they say, God and the devil's in the details. That's where the work is really happening. So I'm... I'm angry. I have gotten angry at a couple donors that I really needed the money for because I didn't have enough money to make this movie. But when a billionaire would tell me, I know how to run this sector, I'll tell you how you do it, blah, 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 blah. And twice, I just went, well, you know what? You don't. You really don't. One of them gave me money. The other one walked away from me and didn't donate anything. But it's like, but it's real tough to get angry, real tough to say, hey, you know, I know how to make a movie. I know how to distribute a movie. I've been doing it for 50 years. And you're telling me how to do it? And they all did. Across the boards, they began to worry that I didn't know what I was doing. Well, it's beginning to be disproven. But that's a movie. That's still easier than doing what Rudy does. So you've both pointed to what I think of the as the intersection of power and the power that rests with money. And what I think is a perception that philanthropy is optional. And so the people with money think it's optional to exercise the power they have and they can, you know, deploy with their resources. And you're both, um, Stephen, you're a story, you're a professional storyteller and Rudy, you have to do this every day. I'm wondering how, how do, how does the sector change the discourse so that there's an understanding that this none of this work is optional, that there's such an incredible urgency to what you're doing. And Stephen, to your point, we have experts who are doing this important work. Stephen, your brain surgery uh, analogy is really important because if I ever found myself in a situation like that, I'd want to make sure that my brain surgeon has everything taken care of, that they got a home to live in, that they don't have to worry about paying their bills so they can focus on doing their job, which is, you know, fixing my brain. <laughs> and, and I think that we certainly don't think about um, folks in our sector in the same way. We actually want them to struggle more. And I, and I think that there's something wrong with that. Elizabeth, the, the, this this uh, this question around urgency is something that I'm really confounded by because we just had a hurricane that just you know crossed over Los Angeles like a month ago, and I'm always just curious, like f- friends, like the world is is not doing well. We don't have a lot of time, and I think that if you if you're if you work with urgency and your goal is to eliminate some of these issues, you're probably going to work differently. 
But I think that sometimes in philanthropy, you might encounter people that that's not their goal. Their goal is to, is to do the bare minimum, to keep their job, uh, to get some headlines in the news, and that's about it. The goal isn't to change the world uh, or to fix it. And um, I think right now what we're encountering in philanthropy is folks that just want to do the bare minimum. They want to take care of their endowments. They only want to spend what's legally required. And I think that that is hurting all of us. And, it, and we're going to get into a situation where it's going to be too late to solve some of these issues and philanthropy might still be sitting on their endowments. So I'm really excited about some of the foundation leaders that are thinking about this and realizing like, wait a minute, the world is ending. Scientists are saying we have three or four decades left. We need to do something now. You know, the homelessness crisis in Los Angeles is getting worse. We need to do something now. And we cannot just give the bare minimum. We have to start, start looking at our endowment strategically, think about how we spend down strategically, think about how we leverage and work with others, because it's not about us, uh, but not about me. It's about us. And I think that's, that requires a culture shift. And I'm excited about what Stephen is doing, because culture shifts require storytellers. Culture shifts require people that are opening people's minds and their imagination again. So we've talked about the mandate or a challenge or, or a welcome door to release these funds, to deploy them and to really get them into the hands of experts who are doing the work. So I wonder if we can pivot now to what may be a, a big source of misunderstanding, and that is the implications of a foundation's process on a nonprofit organization and their ability to access funding. It's like, make it easy. It's easy. Just start. You want to find, you, know, you want to find organizations that are effective. It's really clear. A lot of them are out there. Give them the money and let them do the work and then see what they've done after a year or two. That's my, I mean, yeah. I'm a storyteller, so I'm going to, that's my position. Well, I mean, it's just, it really is as simple as that, Stephen. I, I think that, um, I'll give you a story, Elizabeth, uh, maybe a couple years ago, we, we were working on a new campaign, a new chapter of our effort to legalize street vending in Los Angeles and in California. And this has been something we've been working on for almost 15 years. And it's the problem was that we were seeing a lot of micro entrepreneurs that mattered to us in our city being criminalized. And the reason why is that there was no regulatory system for them, that in fact, L.A. was one of the only cities in the country that didn't have a system for sidewalk vendors. And so we've been working in coalition uh, to work on this for a long time. And we had some big wins in 2018 and passed a state law that created systems for sidewalk vendors. And two years ago, we were um, working on supporting street food vendors. And we noticed again that there was a gap, that, that there was it was difficult for them to get their health permits. So we, we partnered with some legal counsel and we worked with UCLA Law and we developed this amazing research that showed, hey, if, if policymakers just fix these things, we could unlock thousands of new jobs in California that are gonna that are gonna support black and brown entrepreneurs in our neighborhoods, right? It makes a lot of sense. It's exciting. It would be a, some modest changes to the law. We think we could get this done. So of course, you know, we're like, well, how are we gonna pay for this? How are we gonna pay for street vendors to go to Sacramento to advocate for this? How are we gonna pay for the additional research um, and the convening work that we need to do and the advocacy work we need to do? And so we started to reach out to funders, and I, I'll tell you that there was a lot of intrigue about it. But, you know, they, there was a lot of hesitation. 
And with a political campaign like that or any other response to a problem, you have to work quickly, right? If one of your loved ones is losing their home, you need to work quickly. You need to work within days to get some help, right? And what we encountered was what we encounter all the time was that's an amazing issue. So can you write a paper about that and tell us a little bit more about what that is? You know, can you put together a budget on what you think all the problems you're going to encounter in the next 12 to 24 months? And let's we'll, we'll see if we could think, you know, think this through with you. Um, you know what, Rudy, this is great, but our grant cycle doesn't open. Our application cycle doesn't open until six months. So I might be able to include you there. Right. So all the time that goes into trying to fit into their windows puts us in a position where we actually are going to have to just do it ourselves and try to stretch and figure it out. And so that's what happened. Essentially, um, the California Street Vendor Campaign was formed and we basically, you know, covered it on our own with resources that we had and then we stretched and a lot of us volunteered. And some funders ended up coming later. But at that point, you know, the project was pretty much on its on its we were almost about to win. And so I think that the the lesson for me is what would it look like if philanthropy was was just as agile as community leaders have to be? What if when Ed Norton or, you know, uh, you know, any of the community leaders on the east side that are doing amazing work say, hey, this is a problem. We need some resources. We have this amazing high caliber team of professionals that are ready to go. We just need to give them some resources. They're saying, yes, where do I where do I wire the money? Imagine we could work a lot quicker. Instead of creating all this, uh, as, as Stephen said, constipation <laughs> and getting the money out, we're, we're, we're blocking advancement. One quick story. So one of my, one of my, fund, one of my donors, a billionaire, was really concerned about the movie and was really concerned where it was going. Children, this donor, one of his children actually helped fund the movie and he was very concerned about the movie and not, not really happy that it happened because, of course, the movie is totally overhead. So I went and show the movie to him. And that was sort of it. He was very happy with the movie. He was still a rough cut. I went back again about six weeks later to show the movie somewhere else to do something. And he, we had a dinner and he was at the dinner. And we said, what is, how has the movie affected you? This was six weeks later. This is a really rich guy who could move fast. He said, well, what happened to me was right after seeing the movie, a woman came to me from the Ukraine. And she said, would, would you help us build some homes outside of Kiev? And he said, if I hadn't seen the movie, I would have said this, this, let's send this. What are you doing this? What's your infrastructure? What that better day? He said, all I asked was, how do you scale it? She told me how to scale it on the phone. He said, that was six weeks ago. And this was a long time ago. Now, about a month and a half ago, he said at that meeting, he said, 130 homes are on trucks now going out into Kiev because I understood mm. scaling was all that mattered. And he said, now we're moving on to get 5,000 homes there. So that's what can happen with yeah. the movie is critically important and very valuable. So I think one thing that helps in getting resources out quicker is when we create spaces to build authentic relationships with each other. And I think in that case, uh, Stephen told the story. Stephen had enough of a friendship with this uh, funder to say, hey, just look, just watch this movie and spend a little time and spend time and think about it with me. And I think that we don't have enough spaces with funders for that. I think sometimes because of the power dynamics, we're on opposite sides and there's all this politics to try to get a meeting and to try to sit down. And then the funder is like really impatient and we'll give you 20 minutes. And I think that we have to 
I, I guess I want to just say, Elizabeth, that I think creating spaces where we can build authentic relationships with each other, funders and nonprofit leaders, will help, I think, uh, release some of those resources because they'll get to know us, they'll have more trust, and they'll, they'll know that, okay, these are people that I could bet on. Um, sure. and, and we don't have that enough. Interrupting your questions. We're, we're, we're taking over. We're taking over. Rudy doesn't know this yet. Rudy doesn't really know this yet. But the fact that he's in the movie, when he takes this movie to his funders, it's going to change big time. I know the power of media. And what I also know, and I want to say to everyone out there who's in the sector, I made this movie. Well, we a lot of us made this movie. I didn't make it alone by any stretch of the imagination. But I have led the way in this. And by the way, I was also the producer and the director, which means as the producer and the director, I was much closer to the hell that every every leader in the sector goes through because you're just doing too much all the time. But what but the reason that I now have this movie is you don't have to have a close relationship all with all your donors. You just show them the movie. You just watch this movie. You don't have to make the argument anymore. It's made in the movie. And that's the primary reason I made. I want to get into theaters. I want to do all the things it's doing. A lot of things are happening. But this is a, I'll say tool. This is a tool you can just hand to your, and you can then say, oh, excuse me, have you watched the film yet? And they'll say, no, I haven't watched it. I haven't had time because it's about charity. That's a boring subject. Well, watch it. Well, hopefully we get some reviews and things will happen about it. But that's what this can do. But it has a, it has a power to it. And it's going to change the dynamic. And the movie's going to do that because this is a movie about all the heroes. So I think it's going to simplify that, that not going to solve it all together, but it's going to help. It, it's not, it's, it's an observation. And I think it's a continuation of this topic, but you know, one of the things that really emerges from, from this part of our conversation is where the, the difference between general operating support and project support really comes into play. So, Rudy, if your organization had had general operating support, but not only that, sufficient operating support that enabled you to pivot on that given day, and you had some, some resources in the bank, you could then choose, this is an urgent issue and I'm going to deploy funding and, you know, rally around this issue, you wouldn't have been, you wouldn't have been in a position where you had to go talk to funders about something that just came up and then get put onto that six month cycle. And so I think that's a really important lesson for some funders to really understand. I, you all are probably more accustomed to dealing with foundations that have professional staff, program officers, they're following all the rules of, of um, the, the foundation, uh, the cycles, the, the schedules, the forms that one needs to fill out. In the case of our client base, it's a, it's a, it's a little bit of a hybrid. We have some that do have those staffs and those calendars, but we also have others that are probably more similar, Stephen, to your donor that are in a position to make more nimble choices. And I think that this conversation really helps to illuminate when that nimbleness and that flexibility can be so critical. Sometimes project support may make sense, perhaps if it's a huge university or a hospital and you don't want your grant funding to get lost. But with a grassroots organization or a community-based organization, general operating support 
can can really make a huge difference. So I, I think you've you've raised something really important, and it leads me to this next idea of sort of I don't know. It's been called different things, but famine funding versus abundance funding, or you know, this idea that organizations, nonprofit organizations, are in implicitly expected to live check to check, you know, with no available resources to carry you into the next year. And that's what proves that you have need for the next grant. Can we talk about that as a, as a mature organization? What does that prevent you from being able to do? I'm reflecting on your question. I mean, it prevents you <laughs> from being deliberate and, and being planful. When you don't have resources for the next year, it takes you off other really important priorities to focus on that. Uh, I'll give you, I'll be frank with you all, for example, like that's, that was my board meeting this morning. You know, we were looking at the next couple of years, 2024 and 2025 and uh, man, 2025, I, it's like, you know, it's only a year and a half away, but I'm like, okay, I don't have, we don't have a lot of commitments for that year. How are we going to, we got to think about that. And so of course, like any steward or leader of a company, you have to focus on that. And I'll take it a step further because Rudy's running an organization. He's got to function with more care. I don't have to. It's a disaster. And also the interesting thing is we talked about the hurricane. Oh, we have COVID. Who do we reach out to? The nonprofit sector. Oh, there's a fire in, 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 in Hawaii. Horrible, horrible situation. Who do we reach out to? The volunteers. Every single situation where there's a serious problem, we just expect the, the charitable sector to step in. And if they do make one mistake, they get in trouble. But they're, I mean, it's just, it's a disaster. That's, it's, that's what it, and, and, it's a, and it is changing. I mean, there's a sense of change, but some of it's just word of mouth. You were, I stepped in, Rudy. You keep going because it's. When we are worried about resources, we can't uh, focus our time and our talent on other big societal issues. And just, it's, yeah, that's unfortunate. It is a disaster, as Stephen said. I I'm, was struck by something in the, in the film about how year-to-year funding, sort of living and operating so close to the bone has a tremendous impact on dreaming, on this, this opportunity for, this necessity for nonprofit leaders to dream and imagine and innovate the future. And maybe, you know, for funders who are really, may consider that a luxury, perhaps put another way, it is also putting incredible limitations on the ability to plan strategically, to know what you're going to do two and three and five years from now, and ultimately that magic word to scale. So how do we tie the ability to do those things, to the, the, the necessity for nonprofit leaders to look ahead and around the corner? How do we tie that to the funding conversation. It's all related. If, if a foundation or a donor is really passionate about an issue, it requires resources to solve it and to put attention towards it. And, um, and I think it's all connected to investing in a multi-year way in the leaders that are advancing these, uh, the solutions. Uh, it's, I think it's just really straightforward. I'd go back to something you said a long time ago. In, in a way, it makes total sense that with a university or these larger organizations that you vet it very carefully, doesn't make so much sense with these smaller organizations. 
It doesn't actually make sense with the universities either. Give them a chunk of money and see how it went. Don't give them money the next year, but give them the money now. I mean, it's really simple to try and process what are you going to do with this money? What are you going to do with this money? And to fill out all these things, forget it. Give them the money. Let it go. Get rid of this financial constipation. Have a little joy in your life, you you people who are who are the you know the pencil pushers and all of this stuff. I would want, not want to have those jobs. They may be being paid okay in the foundations where they're doing it, but they're not fun jobs. I want everyone to have fun. Give them the money for the year. Let it go. Next year, take it away if it doesn't work. Well, you know, on that note, I mean, I also want to just note that I think we treat people differently. Um, you know, many of us, if you're listening to this podcast on the road, you're probably using an app that has received hundreds of millions of dollars in VC money, and they're actually losing money. They're, they haven't even generated a profit in the probably the five to 10 years that they've existed. But those companies are not treated the way that we are treated. And so I think that there is a little bit of a double standard that we should call out. And um, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be thoughtful about investments. We certainly should. I mean, inclusive action is a lender. So we try to be thoughtful about how we underwrite loans and how we um, and how we deploy that capital to our borrowers. But at the end of the day, we never forget that we have to be thoughtful, but we have a mission. Our mission is to help people get resources. And I think that the, the, the more and more that we become uh, entitled and righteous in the way that, you know, in our judgment calls, we start, lo- we start losing the focus on what our mission is. But I mean, there's so many companies that, you know, that I've known that, man, they're totally losing money, Elizabeth, <laughs> that, you know, and they're getting more and more rounds of, res- of venture capital money. And, and, I, and I wonder why, why is that happening? And let's talk about that. Let's talk about what I I actually am a believer that I'm not convinced that there is a lot of failure in the nonprofit sector or in the philanthropic sector. You know, I'm maybe I'm with I'm with Darren Walker on that 99 point or 99.9% of the time. I think we're maybe we're doing we're not doing what we set out to do, but we're doing something that has value. But I'd love to sort of pivot to this critical question of risk. So, I mean, Rudy, you face risk every moment of your day because you're a lender. <laughs> so you have to assess risk. You have to determine how much you're willing to take. How do we bring that to conversations with funders? You know, how can we talk about risk as a healthy thing, as in fact, possibly a goal? You know, that if we want to be innovative, if we want to be affecting change, then risk and innovation come with that. What are your thoughts on on how to really honestly how to turn risk into something positive? Well, I'll just say that at Inclusive Action, the way that we're addressing that is by having conversations and probing each other uh, around the, the, the around risk. So for listeners, uh, we are a CDFI. We are an advocate, but we're also a micro lender. We have a, a pretty robust micro loan fund. And so we provide low interest loans to entrepreneurs in our community, street vendors and brick, small brick and mortar businesses. And I got to tell you, they come to us because no one else is giving them a loan. They, banks are declining them. Other organizations are not even taking an application from them. And so they're, we're the last stop on the road to get an investment for their business. And I got to tell you that as we go through some of these applications, man, some of these are risky bets. (laughs) And we have honest conversations about why do we feel that way? When I see this borrower, why am I feeling like that they're risky? 
And when we have discussions about that, we start to unpack that, man, maybe there's some embedded racism here. Or maybe we have some bias or prejudice around this type of business or this type of person or this type of community. And, and as we unpack it, we begin to get a little clearer about how we make decisions. And it's a constant conversation. And I got to say that, you know, um, in the micro lending field, there's a lot of celebration of micro lenders that have a 99% repayment rate and everything's perfect. And um, we have been talking a lot about like, man, if everyone's paying us back, that means we're not taking enough risks. We need, wow. to, we need to go harder. And that's something that my team, our underwriters are really leading on is saying, Rudy, we need to go harder and take bigger risks because if, if, if we're not, if we're only picking business owners that are paying us back all the time, we might not be reaching the folks that really need these resources. So I'm offering that as perhaps that's what's needed a little bit more in philanthropy when they're only trying to bet on the, the most proven horses, you know? I love this conversation. First of all, movies are all about watching people who take risks. And sometimes they fail and sometimes they, that's what we want, to take the joy in risk. And to kind of, I keep wanting to reach out to all these really wealthy people who are living the way I know them. They're not happy, a lot of them. Talk about microfinancing, this microdosing, doing whatever they do to try and calm themselves down. Just let go and risk, take risks. So for instance, Homelessness. I just, this was going, this is what, if I, if I can tell this story quickly. Homelessness. Okay, we failed. We have failed at homelessness. It's And we have. We have. But what about the fact that there's a family out there who has three kids? And I know this goes on in L.A. And those three kids don't have Wi-Fi. Those three kids go to the public library, sit down against the wall of the public library at night to get Wi-Fi. And those kids, they're homeless or they just begin to get something pulled together. It's a failure. It hasn't quite worked, but they have enough food. They have parents who are feeling okay. They're maybe getting up, even getting a micro loan down the line. Those are the kids. Those are the kids, not the ones who, you know, my kids were very privileged in a lot of ways. I've done some really important things, but those are the kids who are in those kind of situations who are going to solve climate change. Those are the kids who are going to figure out because they've lived hard lives and have to work things out that are going to figure out how to get plastic out of the ocean. Those are the resources that are being helped, even though it looks like it's not working totally, that are being helped, that are going to make this future very, very different. Those investments are incredibly valuable. And those kids are precious, those kids, because they are the kids that are going to change the future. I love I love your optimism and, and the hope um, that the really inspires me. If we could talk just for a moment about what an ideal conversation between a nonprofit leader and a potential funder would look like. Man, my favorite conversations with funders, with our folks that have supported our work has just been like going to lunch or getting a drink and talking about work and what the the challenges that we're facing. And Um, The best conversations are one in which maybe there's not a specific ask for a resource. It's more of like, what are you trying to, what are you working on? And what are you, you know, and what are you working on? And can, is there ways we can support each other? And I think um, the best conversations are one where we end in points of solidarity with each other, because I really believe that uh, part of the problem with philanthropy and, and the tension with nonprofits is that we have all these silos with each other and we think we're different, but we're really not. We're, we're, we all need each other. And so those are the best, most memorable conversations with our funder friends. That is interesting. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a saying that Gabor Mate is a wonderful uh, clinician and, and a therapist and theorist who said, 
safety is not protection it's connection and that's really what we want to do because i think there's a lot of people there are a lot of people in the for-profit sector and in government and everywhere else who are doing really important things they're doing really important things it helps that they meet the people in the charitable sector the mission-driven sector and they have meals and they talk through these things because i think and I am, I'm terribly optimistic, yes, Elizabeth, but I'm also aware that we may not make it as a species. We may not make it. I think we are going to, but I have to be realistic and go, if we keep going like this, it's, it's not going to be so terrific for our grandchildren and great-grandchildren. I wish and I would love to somehow continue this conversation with both of you in another, in another way. But today, I really want to thank you for your candor and your innovation and your thoughts. Right before we close, I was wondering if you might indulge us with um, a couple of um, answers to our three lightning round questions. So I'll ask each of you the question, the first of which is list three adjectives you would use to describe the philanthropic sector. Rudy, you got to go first. My three, yeah, my, my three words are complex, clumsy, and necessary. Hmm. I'm going to cheat. Unfathomably important. And love. Next question. What is the greatest misconception about deploying one's assets for philanthropic purposes? I, well, I don't have a lot of assets to give, so I'll, but I'll say that when I have donated, I think that uh, when I donate to organizations and to you know folks, I, I think that it's not I'm not losing anything. I think the misconception is, is you're giving something up, but I'm actually gaining a lot. Gain a lot. I'm gaining friends. I'm gaining. I'm. I'm, become, I'm contributing to a community, and that's awesome. There's a, there's a misconception that you're actually giving things away and giving away power, but you're really not. We aren't what we have. We are what we do. And if we do good, if we give, we give everything away. Even wow, then we're in a place that's. I think filled with joy and you don't have to go that far, but if you have a billion dollars, I really suggest letting it mostly go to the people who don't have it. You're going to feel so much better. In a handful of words, what advice would you offer to someone new to distributing wealth via philanthropy? My advice to them would, oh man, 10 words, huh? Sorry, Elizabeth. I would say show up, show up. And what that means to me is, you know, show up to events, meet people, make new friends, um, ask questions. I think that that's the first thing you would do if I was advising somebody to give their resources, just show up and build those relationships. Well, yeah, you know, I think, yeah, I think I put it slightly differently. It's, I'm saying is, is it be humble, be humble, be humble. It's so much better than trying to be cool. I mean, it's like it, we, we get caught in this idea that we've got to be better. You know, you know, kind of make myself better. No, just 
I think it's exactly the same thing. Hang out, give. It's so much more fun, you know. Um, and, and have this is fun, and we need more fun to deal with these incredibly serious issues. Well, thank you both. This has been a wonderful conversation. And and as I said, I wish that we could continue for hours and hours. There's so much to talk about, but we are incredibly appreciative of of, uh, your voices. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Be Giving with Foundation Source. We hope you found our discussion enlightening, entertaining, and thought-provoking. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform so you never miss an update. We appreciate your support. And if you could take a moment to leave us a review, it would mean the world to us. Your feedback helps us improve and bring you content that matters most to you. Remember, the conversation doesn't end here. Join us on Facebook, Instagram, X, or LinkedIn to share your thoughts, suggest future topics, and connect with fellow listeners. We love hearing from you and building a vibrant community around the ideas we explore. To learn more about Foundation Source, you can visit our website foundationsource.com. And together, let's be giving.